listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Would you stand together as we hear God's word from Micah chapter 5? Micah chapter 5, verses 7 through 15. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of a man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is no one to deliver." Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds, and I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, And you shall bow down no more to the works of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. I've uh, noticed in my life most of us are willing to put up with a certain amount of um, discomfort or awkwardness or even uh, humiliation if on the other side of it there's something we want more, some ability to you know, decide for ourselves what we're going to do, where we're going to go, how we're going to be. Uh, for me, my first realization of this came in the moment when I realized it was time for me to get my driver's license. Growing up in a small town in Iowa that was surrounded by cornfields, right? a driver's license meant freedom. I could finally go where I wanted, with who I wanted, and do what I wanted, and best of all, I could just, growing up in a big family, I could just go somewhere and be unobserved, where there's no one else around. So I'm turning 14, and my dad says, hey, Joey, it's time, uh, it's time for you to learn how to drive the car. And I'm like, yes, this is my ticket to freedom. And he says, hop on up here on my lap, and let's practice using the steering wheel. <laughs> yeah, thank you. First hour when I told him that, they're like, makes sense. <laughs> That's what I would do. I'm like, no, I'm 14. I've been driving a tractor, like a lawn tractor, since I was six. I understand how steering wheels work. I get the whole gas brake thing, like it it makes sense. I know it's a 15-passenger van, but still, we're in an empty parking lot. Like, what could I do? Get up on my lap here. Let's practice using the steering wheel. It's like, well, okay, this is humiliating, but on the other end of this is a driver's license, freedom. Now, I don't know what, what it is for you necessarily. For some of you guys, you know, it might be all of the awkwardness and scrapes and bumps that come from learning a new skill, like riding a bike, Uh, It may be those first few weeks of awkwardness when your friends realize, like, you like a girl 
or like, oh, you're interested in that boy, and they start giving you a hard time about it. Maybe, I mean, for others of us, it's that those years of study you put in in order to get the job that you're looking for, or those of us who are in the job and you deal with this, this sort of like, you take it from the boss above because you know after enough time, like you'll be the one with the agency, you'll be the one giving directions, you'll be the one with the power. I mean, most of us are willing to endure at least some measure of awkwardness or discomfort or even humiliation to accumulate the, the power to earn the ability to decide for ourselves what we're gonna do, where we're gonna go, who we're going to be. Which is why the passage we're studying this morning initially did not make a lot of sense to me. I was reading through it, trying to understand it over the last couple of weeks, and had a real hard time wrapping myself, my mind around this passage, Micah 5, 7 through 15, because uh, what Micah is teaching us in this passage is the opposite of what I just said. It's the reversal. It's the undoing of our sort of normal way or natural way of thinking. Micah's goal in the part of his message that we're studying this morning is to show us that in these latter days, whenever that is, however that looks, is difficult to figure out. One theologian I was listening to this week referred to passages like this as signposts in the fog. They may be clear signposts, but you're still in a fog. We don't really understand how all these things go together. But at some point in the future, in the latter days, in the end days, when everything is put right, Israel, the people of God, will finally and fully assume the role that God chose them for, to be his agents of justice and mercy and humility in the world around them. But he's going to do it in exactly the way we don't expect. So we've been learning as we've been going through Micah's message here that God is going to put Israel through the humiliation of exile in order to bring them to the place of power and vindication, all to humble them again and take their power away. See, familiar themes show up from Scripture here. God will use the weak to overpower the strong, but then he removes even the strength of the weak to show them that true power comes from total dependence. In fact, that's the key idea for this morning. If you are writing anything down in your sermon notes, or kids, if you've got your note cards or your church journals or your sermon journals or whatever you've got, if you're writing anything down, write this down. True power comes from total dependence. True power, the power to be God's agents in the world, comes from total dependence. Let's jump into Micah 5, 7 through 15 and see how this happens. First, in the first three verses, 7, 8, and 9, I want you to see how the weak become dominant. And it starts here in verse 7. He says, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. Verse 8, and the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples. Now, what's the remnant? It's a good question. It showed up in chapter 4 in the previous chapter. The remnant is the, the people of God who have been scattered because of conquest, because they've been vanquished, they've been forcibly relocated, and the 
the leftovers, in a sense, are being gathered back together. It's the people of God who, after a long exile, are regathered into a new Israel under the leadership of a king from Bethlehem, a king that Pastor Jeff preached about last week. And Micah uses two sort of opposite or seemingly opposite word pictures or analogies to describe them. He says the remnant, will be, the remnant that will be surrounded by these nations uh, will exist both in verse 7 like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, and in verse 8 like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep. I mean, these seem like opposites because, you know, dew and rain showers are usually, they sound like a picture of blessing and lions that tread down and tear in pieces um, doesn't sound like a picture of blessing. Um, but I think actually both of these analogies are working together. And the point is to show the utter and absolute dominance of the people of Israel in this time. See, dew and rain showers may be a picture of blessing. Sure, a lot of times they are, but here it's a little more nuanced uh, because he says they don't, they, de- they don't delay for men. They don't wait for the children of men. Dew, rain showers, they don't fit into your schedule. If you've ever been to a, a ball game or a parade that had a rain delay, you know that was the rain delaying the game, not the game delaying the rain, Right? It doesn't work that way. We don't get to decide when the rain comes, when the dew comes in the morning. That fits into God's schedule, not like ours. These sort of natural weather things cannot be controlled. They can't be scheduled. They can't be stopped. And in the same way, God is bringing the remnant back together in his own time, on his own schedule. It's happening whether you want it to or not. It's happening whether this is a good time for you or not. He's going to bring his people back into their land. And then verse 8, like a lion, when there's no one to deliver them, the nations around Israel will be powerless to stop the regathering of the people. God's not waiting for their okay. The remnant brought back together will have all of the dominant and relentless force of a lion among lambs, of a hunter-killer stalking furry little woodland creatures in the forest, of me at an all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet or Pastor Nathan with a box of donuts. I mean, that's how relentless they're going to be. So what is God trying to teach Micah and his hearers and us Through these two pictures, well, it's summed up in verse 9. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Now, remember, this is the the remnant, the people described, the the leftovers, the, the weak ones, the people described in the previous chapter as weak and lame. Not like, ugh, lame. But like lame is in you can't get around, you can't walk, you can't get around under your own power, okay? So these are, are the, the people left over in the land who would have been passed over in all of the drafts. These aren't the people you want in your army. These aren't the people you would look to for strength, but they're the ones who will be gathered together by God. And we can't control it just like we can't control 
the dew from heaven. We can't stop it, just like we can't stop a lion stalking its prey. And this remnant, these weak ones gathered back together, will triumph over their adversaries, over their enemies, over all the opposing forces arrayed against them. It's a, it's a great story of triumph for a people facing external military oppression, economic downturn, uncertainty about the future, and not knowing what the next day is going to hold. You can see how this would be a message of hope for a people looking for hope. Mike has been saying all throughout what we've studied so far, you got to repent. If, you, if the people don't repent, there's going to be exile, dispersion, defeat, and shame. But even so, he, he says, but look, there will be a regathering and a consolidation. The people will be victorious. They will be vindicated. And it's the, it's the kind of prophecy, it's the kind of prediction that really resonates, at least with me. I think it probably resonates with most, most of us because this is the kind of vindication if you are one of the weak ones or you feel you're one of the disadvantaged ones or, or you don't have the position of power, this is, the, this, is, this is the triumph we're looking for. Take the weak, take the powerless, and put them in charge. Swap roles, reverse the power structures, take the powerful and make them submit, take the weak and put them on top, make them the powerful ones. Let the weak become strong. But of course, we have to ask ourselves, does that actually work to bring about ultimate justice, the kind of justice and mercy and humility that Micah has been talking about throughout his prophecy? Well, kind of, but mostly only in fiction, right? We tell stories of characters like Captain America, who I resonate with much more before the super soldier serum. That's when I really get his character. But he's the weak, he becomes strong. We tell stories of you know, characters like Jack Ryan, the Boy Scout who makes it to the White House and things like that. But these reversal stories only work in our fiction. In real life, the history of the world is a history of oppressed peoples throwing off their oppressors and becoming oppressors themselves. It happens over and over and over again. Which is why I think ultimately in the latter days, in the last days, at the end, this next section of prophecy is absolutely necessary, verses 10 through 15. Because in 7 through 9, God may reverse the contemporary power structures in the short term, but ultimately, in the long term, he subverts all the human power structures themselves. So uh, look at verse 10. We're moving into the second section here of this prophecy where previously the weak had become dominant. Now the dominant become dependent. Verses 10 through 15, we read how these power structures themselves are undercut. Uh, it starts out, and in that day, verse 10, in that day, this end times day, whenever this is, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and continues with line after line after line of how he undercuts the strength and the power of his chosen people themselves. He says, I'm, I'm going to cut off your horses, destroy your chariots, cut off your cities, throw down your strongholds, cut off your sorceries, 
there'll be no more fortune tellers. I'm going to cut off your carved images and your pillars. There's going to be no more bowing down to homemade idols. I'm going to root out all of your Asherah images and destroy your cities. I know destroy your cities sounds like it's repeated. The second time, it should probably be destroy your idols. There's one letter difference between cities and idols. You know how sometimes when you're writing something while also talking on the phone, you start writing down what you're saying instead of something else? Anyway, scribes do this kind of thing. It should be idols. No big deal. Destroy your images, destroy your idols. See, God is going to subvert all of the foundations of strength that his people had relied on instead of him. Their military might, gone. No more horses, no more chariots, no more defensible cities, no more strongholds. No more security through strong military. Their ability to manage the present in light of the future, it's gone. No more sorceries, no more fortune tellers, which was the sort of ancient Near East version of predicting the future and influencing individuals. We don't have fortune tellers, or I mean, we do today, but we don't have fortune tellers like this because instead we have statisticians and economists to tell us what's going to happen. We don't, we don't use sorcerers to cast spells on people to get them to do what we want to influence their decisions. We just buy targeted ads on Facebook and develop comprehensive strategic marketing initiatives in order to get people to do what we need them to do. But that'll be gone in these latter days, no longer needed. And then verses 13, 14, their religiously tinged insurance plans is gone. Uh, no more little gifts to homemade idols that you made yourself to protect your household, your loved ones, the people you care about. I mean, even now, we don't have those idols. Uh, we have home security systems instead, and our little gifts are automatically deducted from our bank accounts every month, and then we press the button that tells the little idol in the hallway to protect us while we sleep. So maybe we do actually have these now. Uh, but there will be no more Asher images or pillars. Uh, that was basically the equivalent of estate planning, uh, a way of ensuring your future prosperity through agricultural wealth and production. See, there won't be in these latter days any more diversifying of religious assets in order to ensure at least a modest return on your religious investments. Uh, no more, well, maybe I'll offer a little something to this God over here and this God over here just in case Yahweh doesn't show up for me. See, you can imagine the people that Micah is preaching to hearing this for the first time, again, under military threat and economic uncertainty and thinking, wait, what do you mean no horses, no chariots? What do you mean no military defense? How are we supposed to protect ourselves? How do we keep the borders secure without military? What do you mean no sorceries, no fortune tellers? Then how are we going to plan for the future? How are we going to get people to do what we need them to do? What do you mean no more carved images, no more pillars, no more Asherahs, no more idols, but if Yahweh doesn't show up for us, how do we guarantee that some other God will? Someone's got to protect us. Which is why in these latter days, at the end of days, God is going to destroy everything that his own people relied on other than him. The power, the strength, the might of their own hands is 
gone, God will be their strength. Their ability to mitigate against future uncertainty by influencing others' behavior, gone. God will be their certainty. Their appeals to power and security outside of themselves and outside of God will be gone. God will be their only provider, their only defender, their only future, their only worship. And ultimately, in these last days, God will do what what he does to Israel, he will do for the whole world. Look at verse 15. It says, and in anger and wrath... I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Now, I'm guessing uh, there's probably two different sort of reactions to reading a, a verse like that. Some of you resonate very positively with something like this, and you're like, yeah, it's about time God kicked him in the teeth. Show him who's really strong. Show him who's powerful. And there's others of you that are saying, well, you know, I think God's supposed to be the God of, like, love and forgiveness. How how does this work? And I'm glad you brought that up because it lets me talk about a little bit uh, some of these words that are used in different ways in the Hebrew context than they're used when when we use them now. Uh, Look at that first word, uh, well, look at the word vengeance. In anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance. In the Hebrew scriptures, God's vengeance is always positive. It's not negative sounding like when we use the word. It's always about God confronting injustice and pushing his world back towards lawfulness and justice and righteousness. Vengeance in the Hebrew usage is what we want to have happen when we see injustice. It's not vengeance like when we use it, hurt them until I feel better. It's God setting things right, making things right, making things just. And the anger and wrath here in verse 15, or the furious anger, the way these words work together, is the kind of anger that we want God to exhibit towards injustice. A God who could look on evil with indifference and say, whatever, boys will be boys is not a God that is worthy to be worshipped. Only a God who gets angry. Not cranky, not capricious, but settled in his opposition to the cancer of sin and injustice that is eating the people he loves from the inside out. Only a God who gets angry at evil and injustice is worthy to be praised as good. Because it's not good to tolerate evil. Now, this God, Israel's God, Yahweh, the covenant God, in furious anger and vengeance, will bend the ark of the world back towards justice. Not just by reversing power dynamics and putting the weak in charge, though that will happen for a time, but by ultimately subverting all of our human power dynamics and structures themselves putting himself back in charge, reestablishing himself as the foundation of all dependence, the the center of all worship, the guarantee of all peace and prosperity and security for his people. 
That's why I think, like I said back at the beginning of the sermon, that the key idea, the main thing to learn from this passage is that true power comes from total dependence. True power. Not power to serve and advance yourself, but power to be God's agent in this world, to fulfill the mandate to which we have been called as the people of God. True power only comes when we are totally dependent on him. Now, at a real broad level, it's tempting to read verses like this and think, well, how does that apply to our nation? How does that inform the way I vote or the policies that I endorse? Uh, What does this really mean about our military defense and our security and our police and things like that? That is not the point of the passage. For one big reason, because the U.S. isn't the covenant nation that God has a special relationship with. As we've read Micah, we've, we've realized the U.S. is in the list of pagan nations. We're not the covenant people of God. As a country, but as a church, we are. The church as grafted into Israel is part of the covenant people of God. And we as individuals are part of the covenant people of God. So I think there's application for us in a passage like this as we see how God works and will work with his people. It gives us some clues to how he works and will work with us. If the church and us as individual members of a church, individual parts of a church, if the church is going to fulfill her role to be God's agent of justice and mercy and humility in the world, to be God's mediator, to be his go-between between him and the world, if, if we are going to fulfill our role, then I think this passage teaches us at the least that we shouldn't expect to fulfill that role through all of the normal and ordinary human means of power. All the structures and systems and ways we're th- used to thinking about how power works have been reversed, inverted. They've been flipped upside down. Because the church will only fulfill her calling through a powerless dependence on the all-powerful God. And if you think about it, that shouldn't surprise us. That's the way of Jesus. I mean, he's in many ways a double revolutionary. Jesus didn't play to win. He played to lose. Because in losing, in ultimately going to the place of greatest weakness where the peoples of the world put God himself on the cross, in that moment and place of greatest weakness, that's where ultimate victory and strength came in. God, in his mysterious mercy, used Jesus' most powerless moment as a tool for his ultimate victory. And all the power structures of the world flipped upside down. And then Jesus rose again, destroying death and its power. And all of the old ways we used to grab at power and hold on to it, all the structures themselves just became ineffective, irrelevant, gone forever. Well, not quite yet, but we're getting there. 
So I think that what that means for us is that the church at large, and we as individual members of an individual church, we have to face up to the ways and the places where we've depended on our own power instead of embracing the powerless way of God. Maybe more so now than at any other point in recent memory in this year to end all years where we are facing a pandemic and racial unrest and economic upheaval and a coming contentious election. More than at any other time I can remember, we will all be tempted to grab at and hold on to some sort of power, some sort of strength or stability to make us feel stable, feel powerful in an unstable and uncontrollable world. But we have to resist the urge to depend on ourselves and our own power instead of on God. So three things come to mind. Three places, three areas where we need to face our own tendencies to rely on our strength instead of God's. Number one is our self-made strength and smarts. We don't have horses and chariots, defensible cities, but we've got our... We've got our wisdom, we've got our arguments, we've got our plans, we've got our legal statements, we've got our, all the things that we put together to kind of try to protect ourselves. Like maybe if I can just say things in the right way or do things in the right order or control things in the right way through my own strength, I won't have to face uh, the weakness and the humiliations and all the various and sundry things that can come from following Christ. Because maybe if I can win the argument, I won't have to be on the losing side. When, as a church, we're called to embrace the powerless way of Jesus and approach the world with open arms, even if that makes it more convenient for the nails to be driven in. Our arms are supposed to be open as we're more concerned with loving than winning, more concerned with opening our arms than taking up arms. It's number one, we have to face our tendency to rely on our own strength, our own smarts, our own wisdom to face the world around us. Number two, we have to own up to, we have to face our tendency to rely on our own ability to plan and to predict and to influence. If you're like me, I get so focused on the studies and the analyses and the predictions that I forget that sometimes God doesn't have to work in the future the same way he worked in the past. It's easy to look back at the ways that God has worked and say, well, if we could just recreate, reproduce those conditions, maybe God will move again, but he doesn't always. And if we depend on our strategies more than we depend on the spirit, then we've got something backwards. Number one, we have to face up to our own tendency to rely on our own strength and smarts. Number two, our tendency to rely on our own abilities to plan and influence. But number three, I think we have to face up to our tendency to depend on other gods. Now, I've been in many of your homes. I know you don't have Asherah poles or pillars or little carved idols on your shelves. Most of you don't anyway. But we all still like to hedge our bets, don't we? Boy, I'm praying that God will show up in these next couple years, but if he doesn't, maybe the Republicans will. Maybe the Democrats will. 
Or maybe I can come up with a plan or a strategy or a system or some way to make happen what I think God should make happen if he decides that he's not going to. Well, then I, I can do it. I, I can serve someone else, some other strategy or party or something that's going to get me what I want, whether it's power or results or influence. I mean, we have to own up to the fact that we rely on our own strengths and our own smarts. We, we have to own up to the fact that we, man, we, we trust our own ability to plan and influence. We got to own up to the fact that we depend so much on other gods, other strength, other some things to come through for us. And that's, I mean, that's not easy. It, <laughs> we start talking about doing this, and I know immediately many of us are thinking, myself included, but what will happen if I give up my power? How will I be able to control if I give it up? But if that's you, remember... God will not do anything to us that he has not already done to himself in Jesus. God will not do anything to us or ask us to go any farther than he has already gone himself. If he is asking us to embrace the powerless way, then as difficult as that sounds, we know we can because Jesus already has. Jesus already gave up his power, his rights as God. In being humbled, taking on the form of a servant, being found in human likeness, and even more being uh, humbled to the point of death, death on a cross. So that you and I could one day experience the true power of being God's agents in this world as we are totally dependent on him. See, true power comes from total dependence. And I absolutely believe that is true and very much do not want that to be the case. Because I think I'd rather try being in charge for a little while. Rely on my own strength. I'm a pretty smart guy. I could figure some things out. Maybe I wouldn't have to be dependent. Maybe I wouldn't have to be humbled. Maybe I wouldn't have to trust. I mean, how about you? This is why I'm glad as we're studying this book that we are at least doing it together as much as we can and as much as we can online because none of us can walk the powerless way on our own. We have to walk in the way of Jesus with one another. Let's walk together to be the powerless people, the powerless church. maybe then we'll be the church that God can use in his great rescue mission of setting things right. We can pray. In fact, let's pray together. Father God, you have given many of us strength. You have given many of us influence, positions of power, wealth, status. We are not in these end days yet, and so we know that whatever you are calling us to right now, you are calling us to live in light of these days, 
to prepare us now to be a people who will be at home then. So I pray whatever power you have given to your people, whatever strength, whatever influence, whatever status, make us into a people who use what you have given to serve the demands of justice and mercy and humility. Help us not to use our our power to get what we want, but to use what you have given us to be your agents, your agents of justice, your agents of righteousness, your agents of transformation, showing the world what you are like. We pray this in the name of the one who gave all power away, our Savior Jesus Christ.